please pronounce your name correctly for me? Yes, Parry Stave is how I pronounce it. But stave is a Norwegian word, it means wood, and it would have been pronounced stave. Okay. Because we're here, and I now I'm starting to pick up a little bit of the sounds of things that I would not have picked up had I not physically been in Iceland. So, yeah. Okay. Let's go back a little bit. Let's start off with, like, so you you came into the creative industries, but you worked at the most prominent place I just saw was the Metropolitan, which is more sort of, it was that, were you in the historical aspects, the arts side? Like, what part of the Met were you sort of focused in? I was on the administrative side. I, for eight and a half years, I was the manager, the senior administrator of the Department of Modern and Contemporary Art, which meant that I was in a sense, the right hand to the chairman of the department. And I oversaw staffing and the budget, um, managing expenses, uh, scheduling of projects and exhibitions. I liaised with the exhibitions department to project manage exhibitions. Um, I, you know, was the sounding board to the chair. We worked on exhibition ideas together. Um, yeah, just basically keeping the trains running on time. <laughs> That's amazing. And yeah. I, I'm incredibly envious of that position. But how did you even get to that position? So like, were, what schooling did you have that sort of, or even jobs, internships, whatever, that led you to get to the Met? Yeah, well, when I graduated from college and I went to Rutgers, I had majored in 20th century American history. And I thought at the time that I wanted to be a documentary photographer. I wanted to document history and write about it. And I made this very unusual choice of enrolling at NYU's Institute of Fine Arts, which is the Graduate School for Art History, thinking that a strong art historical background would be a good grounding for documentary photography. I mean, it's a stretch, but that's what I was thinking at the time. Sounds and, legitimate to me. And then I get there and I'm taking these classes and I'm excited about the art historical profession. And I ended up becoming a curator slash arts administrator, you know, and ultimately a museum administrator. But out of graduate school, I worked for an arts foundation and then I worked for a corporation that had an art gallery and collection. So I was the curator of the collection and curator of the art gallery, director of the art gallery. In that time, it was 16 and a half years, I curated or organized 50 exhibitions. And our particular slant program guidelines were that we would do exhibitions that wouldn't otherwise be done in New York. So exhibition proposals that were rejected by museums but were really interesting for one reason or another, artist commissions, that sort of thing. And then I went and worked as a consulting curator for the American Scandinavian Foundation in New York. They have a gallery. Their headquarters is called Scandinavia House. And I'd curated a number of exhibitions there, and that's where I really fell in love with Icelandic art and the history of Icelandic art and working with contemporary artists in Iceland. Went to the Met um, because the Met is my museum for life. I grew up going there. I learned so much in graduate school, taking classes there. And 
you know, who does not love the Met. <laughs> and it was eight and a half incredible years of working with incredibly brilliant scholars and curators and museum administrators. I mean, everything, even, you know, everyone who works there is coming at it from the very top of their profession. It was incredible. But I thought to myself, I want one last change in my career, and I really want to be in Iceland. I really want to spend time here working at researching and writing about and curating exhibitions on Icelandic art, you know, and contemporary art more generally. So I knew the Skaftfelt position would become available, and I applied for it. I was lucky to get it. That was a really long answer, though. That's great. Maybe, maybe you need to insert a question somewhere in the middle there. Absolutely not. No, okay. no, no, no you're right. doing beautifully. This is okay. exactly what, I, this is what I'm going for. So from that, the first thing that sort of I wonder about is like you're saying, so you're going from the Met, which is to me sort of like the pinnacle of a career. And then you're saying you want to you want to make a change, which is great. You know, like we all do that at mm -hmm. some point in our lives because we all get bored these days very easily. And we want something new. And you chose Icelandic art. I'm so I'm, I'm fascinated from a person who has a love and appreciation for Icelandic art. What makes it unique? An Icelandic art historian might say something differently, but Iceland, in a way, doesn't have a formal visual culture in the way that we think of it, you know, like a, a history of painting, for example, until 1900. I mean, you could say that the history of photography precedes the history of painting in Iceland because photographers were working here in the late 19th century. But it's not until the late 19th, early 20th century that Iceland has artists who go to Denmark and study in the academy and come back and paint Iceland or paint in Iceland. And so it's an art history that's in formation and it's finding itself, it's finding its identity, it's finding its place. And to me, that's incredibly exciting. Yeah, I've spent a couple of days here already and like I'm noticing a lot of, and I don't mean it in any negative way, but like a rustic feel to it. Like they're very much connected to the earth and the things that the earth offers. And so they seem to use not only in their imagery, but in, even in their techniques of how they produce their stuff. So it's, it's very, um, connected to the earth kind of work versus sort of like formal, you know, French paintings kind of things. Yeah. Once you're here and you see more of it, there's much more nuance to it than that. But in a general sense, to be in Iceland is to be connected to the weather and the environment. I mean, it's sort of inescapable, although there are artists who, you know, don't want to be defined as, you know, children of nature necessarily. You can't escape Iceland's unique nature. But artists in Iceland are highly educated. I mean, they go through the program here in Iceland at any of the colleges that teach it. And generally speaking, they go abroad for their graduate work. And they have since the 1970s. I mean, you know, you met 
Brury, she studied in Holland at a time when conceptual art was being taught there, and that was the place to go, you know, if especially if you were in Europe. Artists in Iceland are very cosmopolitan, extremely well-educated. They're not just mining what is here in their theory and their approach. They are connected internationally. Well, and, and that connectedness is a question that I've actually asked other uh, artists and creative people on well, from Iceland, on Iceland, from Iceland. Is it, like, is it the intention of Icelandic artists to be known internationally? Or is it really just the intention of like them to just make great work kind of thing? Like, you know, is there that need or desire to become internationally known? Or is it really just being proud of what they make, period, kind of thing? Oh, I mean- I would say it's both. Any artist wants to make their mark, you know, in their home country. But to have an international reputation is extremely important because there isn't the collector base here. I mean, even if there were an established collector base, it would, because of the size of the population, be a small one. And so you want to be collected by collectors elsewhere in order to really you know, have a steady income and to be able to do the work you want to do and live in the way that you need to to create work, to support yourself as an artist. So you know, it's vitally important that their work be seen outside of Reykjavik. Well, I mean, and that's what I wonder about, because like I come from America and in America, of course, we have the states and like you can do things in different states and things like that. You come from America also. So I I don't mean to sound like I'm different from you, but whereas here's Iceland is very well, literally isolated It's an island. And so like it, it, I always wonder, like, is there that desire to be connected to the outside world or is it more of a just like a little bit of an isolation? Definitely. There's a desire to be connected. To the outside world and then you've now taken this position yeah and i'm horrible with pronunciation so please pronounce the name of the place well i mean being an american and not speaking icelandic i'm not so good at the pronunciations either but i would pronounce it skaftfelt now so that is not in reykjavik which mm-hmm. of course is the major metropolitan area in iceland that's in the middle of nowhere yeah but it's very much a somewhere okay <laughs> yeah say this fjordar is very special and you know the more time that i'm spending there especially talking to people who are historians of the town the more i'm understanding just how special it is first of all It's special geographically because it's a long, deep, narrow fjord, and the town is at the end of it or at the threshold. And the mountains are very close to the fjord, so it's very tight. And I'm told by sound artists that it has its own particular kind of acoustics, just the town itself. And then, you know, to get there is a journey. So it has to be a destination if you're going there. Yeah, how uh, far because, a drive is it from Reykjavik? Yeah, well, f- it's, if you go the northern route, it's nine hours by car. If you go the southern route, it's 13 hours by car. You can fly. You can fly in less than an hour from Reykjavik. Oh, that's but, not so bad. But, that, that, but, but you get there by going to the town of Eilstadir, and then you have to drive over a mountain pass, Fjarðahedi, to get to say this further. And that mountain pass, there can be times in the winter when it's closed, 
when it's closed. And so you're basically mm, uh, just using the word that became the title of the series based on, say, this fear there. You could be trapped in the town for a few days if Fjallthehedi is impassable. It is, it is unique that way, and it attracts a lot of international artists. There is a, an expat community there. I feel like I've fallen right into it happily. And there are a lot of artists there. And Dieter Rote, the German-born Swiss artist who became an Icelandic citizen, had a studio there and home there, uh, same place, uh, for the last 10 years of his life. And he was one of the key founders of Skaftfeld. And there were several people, uh, many of them still with us, happily. They founded this art center because they felt it was important to have a place to have a residency and, and have people come. And there's a library of artists' books there. And yeah, so that's how it happened more than 25 years ago. Yeah, I, I had Hannah Kristal, the mm -hmm. previous person whose role you're now taking on, mm -hmm. uh, on as a guest previously. So, we, we, you know, for those listening, if you go back and listen to the, the, the conversation with her, there's actually a lot more details, like the printing presses that were there and things mm -hmm. like this that were Dieter's as well. Yeah, and then, you know, two years ago, there was a landslide, yes. a mudslide, and those printing presses fell into the sea and you can't fix them. So we have to start over again. We just acquired a new printing press, which is fabulous. And What kind of press? I love printmaking. Uh, it's an intaglio press. Okay. Mm -hmm. My master's thesis was letterpress. Oh. And so, so I love this kind of stuff. Oh, well, you'll have to come sometime. It's a very special to. place. It's also special because it's the only place in Iceland where there is a ferry to Europe. So the ferry comes in once a week, and it, it stops in Torshavn in the Faroe Islands, and then it goes to just outside of Copenhagen. And so there is this connection, this direct connection, and it's you know regular to Europe, and one could board the ferry with a car and then you know disembark and drive i have a friend that actually just did that oh, really? with his son and uh they were on motorcycles oh how did they like the trip uh they loved it except for the wait for the ferry like oh. they, they they got stuck waiting for many hours uh -huh. but short of that they loved it beyond that because they mm -hmm. started here went to faroe islands denmark and then motorcycled across europe so like fantastic they just loved it yeah yeah. So, there, well, there's an, a Czech artist in Say This Fear there who did that with her scooter. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, I'm not a motorcycle rider, so like, I'm not personally going to do that. But I understand. But some people in Say This Fear there would tell you that it was the first town to really be a modern town in Iceland because it was the first town in 1906 to have telegraph cable connection to Europe. And then Norwegians who had a herring, fishing, smelting factory in Iceland, in Sæðisfjörður, um, brought modern implements from Norway to, to Sæðisfjörður because they settled there and they wanted to have, you know, some modernization. Maybe Hanna went over this went in her interview with you, but there was a printing press so that there could be a local newspaper. They brought 
other tools. It's how it is that the Technical Museum in Seydisfjordur was founded to help preserve some of this technical history. You know that you've arrived on the modern scene when, you know, you have a shop set up in a town that sells women's undergarments, you know. <laughs> and so it has that distinction of having this 20th century Norwegian influence that was very entrepreneurial and very forward-looking. I hope to visit sometime. Yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing. Everybody talks very highly of it. And there's, of course, all the, the acoustics and then the beautiful, the, the sculptures, the acoustic domes that are outside, up in the mountains outside of it, just look amazing. I, I'm not even a sound artist, ironically, as I run a podcast, but I'm not really a sound artist. But, like, I would love to just go up there and, like, just listen to music. Yeah. Yeah. It would be beautiful. Well, come in the summer months. <laughs> I have heard that, yes. Yes, indeed. Now, so you're taking on this new role, though. So if it's not too personal, sort of like what happened in your, because you were born and raised in New York, if mm -hmm. I understand correctly. Why would you choose to go from you know a major metropolitan area to a not major metropolitan area. I'm trying to be polite. Uh, well, I grew up in a small town, so it's not unfamiliar to me. When I had a child 28 years ago, I also raised him in a small town. I love small towns. I love grassroots efforts. To me, you know, a small town is just a microcosm of the wider world. And, you know, so many times this last month, I've only been in my job for one month, but so many times I've been having conversations with my colleagues about the struggles of keeping an arts organization afloat and active. And, you know, the, the same problems that Scuffelt has, the Met has. I mean, it's always, there's never enough money. You know, it's a struggle finding the right people, having enough staff, there's never enough. So. I'm just applying experiences, you know, knowledge I have gained from experiences working for a really large cultural organization to a smaller one, but the problems are the same. You know, what's going to be a challenge for me is that even though I've been to Iceland many times and I've worked on projects here before, it'll be understanding the bureaucracy and the culture of bureaucracy, you know, how to apply for grant. Who do I need to know? How does it work? When might I be being too pushy? When do I need to push harder? I mean, that's that's going to be my biggest challenge, no doubt about it. And I don't speak Icelandic. I start my classes next week. Excellent. I do. I have been studying Old Norse, so that should be a good, you know, <laughs> grounding good, good foundation. for a yeah, good foundation yeah. for learning Icelandic but hopefully uh, hopefully a fresh set of eyes from abroad you know looking at a bureaucratic network and system at least I'm not afraid <laughs> you know well that whole issue of bureaucracy is an interesting one because like funding and bureaucracy is something that fascinates me because like when I came in chose to go into the arts because I shouldn't say I came in I chose to come into the arts because I wanted to be in the arts I chose it because I didn't want to deal with bureaucracy and funding at all I wanted to be on the creative side I wanted to make things but these days funding and bureaucracy runs the whole thing like maybe i'm wrong maybe i was just romantic and naive and maybe it always has but it just feels like it's more now well i can't speak for iceland because i don't know yet <laughs> but i mean 
let's be honest with each other, we, we can't fight the gun lobby in the United States because it's the gun lobby that is funding the politicians who keep gun rights lax, you know? I do. Yeah, so it's political. Well, it's just like big pharma, big tobacco, like all these kinds of things. They're just Yeah, the horrible. insurance companies, oh, you know. Oh, no, yeah. So, we're, we're we're you know, they have us by the throat. It will take an enormous will in our country, but then, you know, Iceland has its own issues. I'm learning, I'm understanding, but it's going to take an enormous will of the people to say enough, enough. Well, I mean, I, I lived in the United States. I've also lived in the Middle East and the United Arab Emirates. Really? And now I'm in Prague. And so, like, I've learned a lot of different bureaucratic methodologies. Like, because, like, when I was in America, and I've said this before on the podcast, but, like, when I was in America, I was taught by my teachers. When you, like, write a proposal or anything like that, you're supposed to be a cheerleader. You're supposed to, like, inform the reader of, like, how you fit into the lexicon and the vernacular and the history and the, the canon and all this. Whereas here in Europe, it's much more, this is what I do. Either you like it or you don't. It's very humble. It's very mm -hmm. uh, straightforward. And boy, I love that so mm -hmm. much, you know. And then, of course, in the Middle East, in the United Arab Emirates, it was very much, um, it was very much like I'm going to use gold for this, and it's going to be this expensive, and it was all about prestige and mm -hmm. showing off and mm -hmm. blah blah blah. So, like, it's very interesting how, like, regionally, these kinds of processes are very different. So, like, when I go to, let's say, apply for a residency at your your location because I don't want to mispronounce the name at your location that, you know, like I don't quite know how to, like, it's really hard to like, because like a lot of different cultures don't write their applications the same mm -hmm. way. And mm -hmm. like, I'm big, my big pet peeve is vernacular mm -hmm. across the board. Mm -hmm. I wish the arts would come up with like a consistent vernacular for things because there's so many subtle nuances about how like one group of people say, ecology and another people when they read that they read it very differently mm -hmm. or you know so like it, it, i wish there was some like standardized def definitions of things and it drives me nuts because i don't know how to apply for things mm. in a lot of cases and i feel like a lot of people have this this kinds of problems as well but that's that's my soapbox for the day <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, we'll see how I do. I'm ready to jump right in and... That was no judgment on you, just No, 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 it's, of, uh, no. I didn't take it as one. So what kind of bureaucratic things that have you noticed that are different here versus, let's say, the United States, since those are your two primary working environments? Um, I heard about pushiness, American pushiness. Well, I just... Yeah, you know, I have yet to really comprehend how an American is perceived. But I think there is... I I'm married to a Czech wife. I can tell you exactly how Americans are perceived. We are perceived as obnoxious, pushy, loud, um, selfish. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And well, all our food is far too big. Yeah, the proportions are... Um, Correct. Yeah, are smaller. That's a good thing. <laughs> I think Icelanders generally receive Americans well because of the Marshall Plan. Iceland, it was important to the Allied forces in the Second World War. And after that, they were recipients of it through the Marshall Plan and 
that was good for rebuilding Iceland. Instead of just having, you know, the fishing industry taxed labor-wise, and there were sacrifices made, but there were a lot of fishermen lost at sea in the Second World War. But instead of having the fishing industry part of the war effort and then just abandoned mm -hmm. after the war, I mean, there were, there were definitely negative sides to the American presence here, and I know that. <laughs> but I think, by and large... American culture is well-received, I think, I think. I mean, a lot of Icelandic artists come to the United States to study for their graduate degrees, so, you know, there is that. But I've um, also seen them go to Scotland a lot, and I think that's just because of proximity. Like, could it's be. the closest, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. arts destination, I guess. But, no, okay, so now coming in as your new position, yeah. are there new projects that you you want to create or any sort of new future ideas like so how is it going to expand or are you sort of just going to just just um continue to sort of build up the existing structure of what's already there well so much will depend on the funding that we get but you know we're trying to be creative about that as everything um, does <laughs> uh Skaftfeldt is part of a group called narca the nordic alliance of artists residencies for climate action, NARCA. And the other residencies are in Svalbard and Sweden and Finland and Scotland. They meet on a fairly regular basis, but this is to talk about what artist residencies can do to educate the public, their public, their audience, maybe even the wider audience on climate action. And I would like to think that the residency program and the exhibition program at Skaftfeld could play a big part in that because the lives of indigenous populations are changing because of this. I mean, Skaftfeldt is a perfect example because in Say this year, there there were these mudslides two years ago, and that's directly related to climate change, and lives were affected. And that will, you know, that will affect the future of the town. I would like to use some of the programmatic space and funding to address that in this sort of wider group effort that we have together. I think it's really important to preserve the founding spirit of Skaftfeld, the Dieter wrote spirit of collaboration and of ex finding, using raw space for experimentation, you know, and finding space and time and, and promoting collaboration between artists. And just this morning, I met with Joe Keyes, who was one of the artists who just exhibited at Skaftfeldt, and we were talking about how when he and the other three artists on his residency were there for a month, the ideas that were exchanged between them and some of the things they worked on together, including this beautiful handmade artist book that they all worked on together. Um, yeah, so, you know, what the great things that can come out of the synergies when you put artists together and give them space and time to work together. That's the thing that excites me more than anything. And how, how the community can benefit from that and how they can be involved with it. Residencies across the board, I find to be amazing. Like I, unfortunately, in my youth, 
I was not informed as to like how important they are slash could be to an artist's career. And so I didn't do a lot of them in my younger years. Now I now know how important they are. And I'm like, God, I wish somebody had told me or younger, like they are amazing. It's never too late. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> Families come. I mean, there I'm have working been, on it. I'm working on there it. have been cases of, you know, an artist coming with their family. Well, and, and that's an interesting thing that's changed a lot because like for many years, a lot of artists had the problem where they couldn't come because they had families and stuff. But the artist residencies across the world are becoming more accommodating of bringing spouses, bringing children and so on to residencies, whereas that was not acceptable or allowed, you know, even 20 years ago in mm -hmm. many places. So that's great as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. I'm all for it. I'm it's it. Yeah, I have this. It's so hard. Okay, I here. I'll give you my two cents yes. again. I'll go on my soapbox. Please. About this. <laughs> I feel so bad. Okay, I love artist residencies, but I find a lot too many artist residencies. Now, I want to be clear. I, I have not looked at your proposals at your location, so this is no judgment on yours. But I feel like a lot of times I, I read them and they are so specific they they have a very specific thing and i always feel like i just missed whatever was like whatever i do was last year <laughs> you know like like when the the when i first found out about like artist residencies themselves i was like oh my gosh this is so exciting i'm gonna go apply now i had just turned 40 years old and that year every residency was for people 39 and younger and I'm just like, God damn it, one year, one year. Oh, well, I know our residency isn't, doesn't discriminate or doesn't uh, uh, lack a a inclusion because of age. <laughs> I know. Based on but, age. But a lot, a lot of times it's, um, I mean, and don't get me wrong, I understand why it is this way because a lot of uh, they, a lot of the residencies have funding that have criteria that they have to sort of meet and all this kind of stuff. But it's very difficult sometimes as an artist to sort of almost even find the right place to apply mm -hmm. because let's say somebody does figurative work. I mean, it, there are very few residencies that are based on figurative works. Whereas if you do landscape or conceptual or anything like this, there are a lot more residencies. So it's, it's mm -hmm. a little bit hard because you kind of have to tailor your applications a little bit to get to, the residency, to even get the residency. Yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes I feel like that's kind of like, I don't know, selling out a little bit. Like I'm again, I'm very romantic. I like pure. Right. Stuff, so. Well, I'm new to this because I've never worked at an artist residency before. So we'll see. We'll see. It's hard though. Yeah. I mean, I'm and again, I'm not criticizing anything about Skotsfell. Am I pronouncing? Skotsfell. Skotsfell. So bad with pronunciations. Yeah, the thing to know, and I'm certainly no expert on Icelandic, but two L's mm. is pronounced T L. Oh. I so scuffed felt. Scuffed felt. There okay. you go. I'll forget it in five <laughs> minutes. I'm so bad. So the, yeah, and of course the other part about residencies is funding. Yeah, you know, like I mean, everybody can go to ones that are fully funded and ones that are not fully funded are more difficult. Mm -hmm. And and also they also look better on the resume as well because right. there's that you know they're like I know a lot of people that do a lot of residencies that they pay for. 
and but it doesn't look great on their CV necessarily, but they get the experience and all that. So like, it's this hard juggle of like, what are the right places to go, worthy places, places that you even as a creative person sort of get the most out of kind of thing. I know some amazing ones that artists have to pay to be and they get amazing opportunities and meet amazing people. So I'm not saying the ones people pay to go to are bad, but boy, we want more that that are fully funded. Sure we, we do. Sure we do. But what I can already say Scaffeld has going for it as an artist residency. If what an artist is looking for is time far away from home and distractions, time to work and think, that is a place to go to because it's phenomenally beautiful. I mean, the mail comes twice a week. There just, there isn't the kind of distraction of the everyday that you would have at home, wherever home is. It's an extreme other in terms of an experience. And I would think, at least from the artists I've spoken to already who who have been to that residency, it's, it's a very welcome change. I mean, some people at Skaftfeld have stayed and now live in Seydisfjord and have for years because the residency was so critical to, you know, having time and space to work. Yeah. I always say like time, space, and money are the three things yeah. that, that artists always want. Yeah. But realistically, my wife's an accountant and she wants those same few things. So like. <laughs> but it's also the other thing that's important is a hub for the exchange of ideas. And we have that too, because there are so many artists living in Seydisfjord. And then an essential part of Skaftfjord is the bistro. I mean, the whole bistro was designed by Bjorn Roth, the son of Dieter Roth. This Roth aesthetic, this Dieter Roth aesthetic of, you know, you can learn about art in a classroom, you could also learn about it in a bar. And it just has this marvelous big table, like this big, you know, folks who are listening, it's a 10-foot-long table. And, uh, you know, you can scribble on it. There's paper and crayons and pens. And, you know, it's a place to just sort of have some beers and talk to your mates. Um, yeah, well, that's another thing that, like, it's re- I recently had a lot of discussion with people, which is, like, as we mature in our arts careers, like, when we're younger, we're in school and, and we're very social and all this kind of stuff. And as we get older, that community, that that, that peers, those um, feedback, we'll call it, because it's not necessarily critiques, but, like, feedback and sort of inspiration and stuff, those people become exponentially more important the sort of more mature you get. Mm-hmm. And and, and, and it's very hard to keep those people because, I mean, we just went through a pandemic. You know, I mean, the, people are now spread out all over the world. So, like, that connectedness is a very prized possession, I believe, to most of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as far away as it is from the rest of the world, there's a lot of connectedness there in, in say, this year there. I would say, you know, I mean... I went there once on my own to take a photography class with Jessica Auer, the Canadian photographer who lives most of the year in Say This Year and has a studio there she calls the Stranden Studio. And I was very taken by the place just in that one afternoon and I went back to Say This Year there repeatedly in later years and then now I'm living there. So, yeah. It happens like that. It happens like that. Yeah. It does. Yeah. 
Is there anything, any topics that I haven't asked you about that you think are important to talk about? No, I think we've covered a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, the last thing I generally like to ask about is any sort of advice that you might give to anybody who's thinking about coming as a resident or somebody who maybe wants to follow in your career path or anything like that. Some, something that like some experience or knowledge that you've had that you think that other people could sort of benefit from. I mean, to, to students like your students who are thinking about career path, I would say always keep an open mind because the world is changing so fast. I mean, as fast as technology changes and new jobs that didn't exist 10 years ago are cropping up. And so just keep an open mind and don't be afraid to make a radical change. You know, that's the other thing I would say. I've just done it. And I was going to say, coming from somebody who just <laughs> yeah, left pretty New radical, York City. But I, I couldn't be happier. I, I just couldn't be happier. Yeah, an open mind and change is good. Change is good. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. We would also appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, families, co-workers, and studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. You can listen rate, and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.